Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9. Make sure you're in fellowship. And Scripture says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. So sin breaches that ongoing relationship with the Lord and for the Holy Spirit to have his uh, full impact in terms of our spiritual growth. We need to be in fellowship. And then the Holy Spirit uses what we, te- what we learn and he reminds us of the things we need to apply and how to apply it. And he is the one who produces spiritual growth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have your word, that your word truly enlightens us as to the way things are, how you have provided for us, and the nature of our salvation. Father, we're especially thankful for the way in which you revealed yourself progressively and incrementally over the course of time. And as this is recorded in your word, we uh, come to understand uh, many important things about Uh, the plan of salvation about our Lord Jesus Christ, many different facets and dimensions of his person and his work that uh, would not be fully understood if it were not for these various illustrations and pictures which you've provided from the Old Testament. Now, As we continue our study of uh, the tabernacle, we pray that we might be drawn closer to you, that uh, we might be encouraged in our own spiritual life, and that we might gain a greater appreciation for all that you have provided us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, just a couple of announcements that I ought to go over before we go any further. Don't forget we have the memorial service for uh, John Sconey Palmer on Saturday morning, this Saturday, September the 6th at 10.30 a.m., and there will be a reception and lunch following. And if you want to help, please see Ann Wright. Since she's here tonight, you can see her don't have to just wave through the camera. And then the next Saturday, there's a ladies' prayer brunch at 10.30 in the morning, and then you get to skip a week, and then there will be a prep school meeting in the morning on Saturday the 27th and a family night that evening. So we have a busy social calendar. All right, open your Bibles to Ezekiel, I mean, excuse me, Exodus 26. Exodus 26. We're continuing our study of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was one of the ways in which God communicated to the Israelites in the Old Testament about the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know that that I could actually prove this, but it is my belief, as the longer I study the Word, that in the process and progress of Revelation, 
God chose to reveal different aspects of his plan and different aspects related to salvation uh, through a lot of different means. And in the Old Testament, he does it through very concrete visual means. You have all of the different types and you have the, um, the, the physical, visible sacrifices. All these things are very concrete easy to see, easy to understand. And I think that one of the reasons for that is because in the layout and progression of God's uh, plan for history, in those dispensations of the Old Testament, there's no, there's no indwelling or filling of the Holy Spirit. And so people do not have the Holy Spirit to help them understand the basic doctrines, the uh, advanced doctrines of the word. They can grasp certain basics apart from the Holy Spirit, things that are seen visibly, visually, things that are more concrete. But it's not until you get into the New Testament where you have much more abstract, sophisticated developments of doctrine within the whole category of what we call the mystery doctrines of the church age, the special revelation that God gave, especially through the Apostle Paul, also through John and Peter, the primary writers of the New Testament. And to understand these things, you have to have the Holy Spirit. Even with the Holy Spirit, Peter says at the end of uh, 1 Peter, he commends the writings of, of Paul, many things of which, Peter says, are difficult for me to understand. So if Peter, an apostle, with the Holy Spirit finds Paul difficult to understand. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you just, you just don't have a clue. And in the Old Testament, you don't have anything comparable uh, to that. But you do have an understanding that comes through the Holy Spirit to the prophets, the writers of Scripture. And as Peter says, they understood to a certain degree the things that they saw and the things that they, that were revealed to them. And the gospel was one of those things that they longed to understand, longed to look into, but they didn't understand uh, the fullness of what was uh, what they were writing. Even they they understood. I think in some things they understood more than what we know that they understood. In other words, they, there was revelation that was uh, in addition to what became inscripturated. For example, when you read about Abraham in, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that he understood that if he sacrificed Isaac, that God would just raise him from the dead, which indicates that Abraham had a pretty sophisticated understanding of the doctrine of resurrection. But if you go back to read Moses' account in Genesis 22, there's no indication there at all that he understands resurrection. Resurrection isn't even mentioned in Genesis. So there's obviously revelation information that was available to the certain people in the Old Testament. Enoch, who walked with God uh, prior to the uh, Noahic flood, uh, and he just walked right, up, right with God right off into heaven one day and never went through physical death. Uh, Abraham, Moses, I think there were a number of things that Moses understood that, that wasn't put into Scripture, but he had a clear grasp of certain, certain doctrines. But these were also men who had 
the Holy Spirit who was revealing things to him. There were things revealed to Daniel that Daniel was told not to write down, to shut up, and they wouldn't be uh, understood until the end time. Same thing with uh, John when he writes Revelation. There's some things he's not supposed to write down. So there were clearly some things that were revealed to them that they understood that were not part of the uh, full corpus of knowledge that was available to every believer in the Old Testament. But when they did write, they didn't fully comprehend or uh, understand the full implications of what they said. And for a lot of people, that's hard to understand. They think, wow, with everything that Paul understood, what do you mean we understand something better than Paul did? Just think about the, the, the concept of the Trinity. Most of you, if you've been a believer since you were six or seven or eight years old like I have, or since you were in high school, you've, un, you've heard the Trinity. You've re, if you grew up in some sort of... Uh, church that had a little more ritual to it, and you recited the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or something like that, you, you, you understood the Trinity. You've heard the term Trinity all your life. You drive around Texas, you'll see developments by Trinity Corporation. I mean, this word is just part of the, the vocabulary of any, almost any 20th century American, whether they understand the Christian doctrine or not. But Paul didn't have that vocabulary word. He understands the Trinity to a certain degree. He doesn't not believe what we believe, but he doesn't even have the precision of our vocabulary that's developed in subsequent generations to express, synthesize, summarize that which he communicates. That's part of the growth of the church. The doctrine of the Trinity is all through Paul's writings. I'm not saying it's not, but he doesn't have the the tight vocabulary and definitions that are developed on the basis of what he says. So it's interesting just to look at the, this and think about how God revealed things so that that at different eras and different dispensations, people understood things, and there's that progression. And we come to, to today, and Jesus said, of whom much is given, much is expected. And the modern church today, the contemporary church, has more available to it. There are so many things that are available and in print, both good and bad. But And there are people like uh, Bob Pritchett, who's the president of Lagos, whose life ambition, he's a young guy, uh, he's about 30, 31, uh, his life ambition is, by, is to, actually it's not even his life ambition, by I think 2030 he wants to have every book that, a Christian book that's ever been written to be on computer. And and that's just a phenomenal thing to to think about that, that I might even live long enough to see that. But it just just unbelievable. They have teams of men, volunteers, and paid paid students that they have hired at different seminaries around the country. And they somebody invented for them uh, it's like a, a Xerox machine scanner, whatever, and all you do is take these old books, and you know what these old books look like, printed in 1850 or 1640, and you set those into the machine. The machine swallows it into its innards, opens it, and gently turns each page and scans the whole book, and then puts it back out. And so they're, they're paying teams of seminary students and libraries all across the U.S. and in Europe, England, to take books and go through this process. And it's, it's just, it blows your mind what, what they are uh, 
uh, what they're trying to accomplish here and getting all this stuff in print. And everything printed before 1923 is in public domain. So that's their project right now is to get everything printed um, before published before 1923 to get that into an electronic format. The, the data that we have in front of is just unbelievable, and the ignorance is just, you know, you just can't fathom the biblical illiteracy and the theological ignorance that's out there today. I think that's just an irony of God's plan that we live in an era when there is so much available, so much biblical truth available on the Internet, dozens, hundreds of pastors teaching solid stuff, have it out on the Internet, uh, free, pay for it, whatever. And yet there's just an unbelievable uh, dearth of desire. People don't want to know. They sit in churches. I know pastors who sit in churches. They say, you know, I, I just keep hearing this from, you know, a certain vocal minority in the church that I'm too deep. Uh, I'm giving too, I'm, I, I talk about Greek and Hebrew too much. Even when I don't even talk about it, I talk about it too much. Yeah. And 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 this is happening more and more, and it's just uh, I think that's part of God's the way in which God shows the failure of a generation is by giving them more truth, and they uh, reject it even more. Well, we're getting aside from our main topic here, the tabernacle, but God, in the progress of revelation, gave all these events, people. Uh, the various objects of ritual to teach in very concrete ways key doctrinal uh, principles and realities and key things about the person and work of Christ within the tabernacle as we have seen. And we've looked at various pictures and portraits of the uh, tabernacle as it would have appeared in the ancient world. And we've gone through the outer courtyard, the brazen altar, the uh, labor, and then into the Holy of Holies itself. And we come to the uh, outer room in the tabernacle itself, the dwelling place of God. And in the outer room, we've seen that there are these uh, three pieces of furniture, each of which says something about the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the, on the left, which would be on the uh, south side was the golden menorah, uh, straight ahead the altar of incense, and on the right the table of showbread. The golden menorah pictures Christ as the light of the world, that he is the, when he, John uh, comes, if you notice a lot of the, the uh, verses that I've gone to in the New Testament to depict these truths come out of the Gospel of John. Uh, John is is uh, has a lot to do. The imagery in the Gospel of John has a lot to do with the tabernacle and the temple. But when we begin at the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word is that aspect of communication and enlightenment. This is the role of the second person of the Trinity to reveal who God is. Uh, to the people. So the uh, golden menorah depicts Christ as the light of the world, the one who shines forth in the darkness. And then we looked at the table of showbread, which pictures Christ as the bread of life, as the just as the word of God, the written word of God is is described as the uh, as bread. That in Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread, or bread alone, quoted it by Jesus in Matthew 4.4. 4. 
Christ as the living word is also a source of spiritual sustenance. We're to eat his body, drink his blood, which as we saw when I studied that is a, is a metaphor for the fact that we are to appropriate who he is and what he did into us. We are to believe it, to accept it, make it part of us. And that's the imagery behind eating. And then last time we looked at the altar of incense, which is a picture of Christ as our intercessor. He is the one who stands uh, before the Father. He is the one who prays for us. And we looked at John chapter 17, as John 17 is the true Lord's Prayer in the New Testament, Christ's high priestly prayer on the night before he goes to the cross, just before he goes, uh, just before he goes to the cross. And as part of the whole, uh, what's called the upper room discourse, even though all of it does not take place in the upper room, it begins there where they're celebrating Passover, the upper room, uh, immediately in John 13, John 14, then as they leave to go on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, on the way he prays in John 17, comes to the Garden of Gethsemane. All of that section from John 13 to John 17 is designed to communicate church age truth to the disciples in preparation uh, for Jesus' eventual ascension. And so tonight we come to the next uh, thing in the next article of furniture in the holy place that separates, divides the holy place, the outer room from the inner room, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, and that is the veil which uh, depicts Christ as our mediator, Christ as our mediator. And as we look at this, we have a picture here taken from the what previously was a, a model that was set up out in the southern Judean desert of the tabernacle in Israel. And we see the pictures of the veil here as it hung so that no one would see into, no one could go into uh, the presence of God. As we think about what is described in Exodus, there are three sets of curtains uh, that are involved with the tabernacle. There is the outer set of curtains, which forms the uh, outer wall, which prevents anyone from entering into the uh, t- tabernacle itself uh, except through the one entrance. So the, there's the curtains that surround the outer car- courtyard. And then there's a second curtain, and that's the curtain that uh, hangs uh, on the outside separating the outer courtyard from the inner uh, holy place. And then there is the third curtain, the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. Each of these curtains indicates and reinforces the idea that God is completely separated from man. That is the emphasis here, is God is unique. He is different from man. He is set apart from man. He is uh, he can only be reached if you come to him on the on God's terms and and the point is that God is unapproachable except on his terms. He has the right to determine the basis by which people can come into his presence, the basis by which people can have a relationship with him. So the idea of these curtains is the idea of separation, the idea of 
of keeping God at a distance because there is something that separates God from man, something that prevents men from being able to have immediate access into his presence. And this is related to the basic idea of the meaning of the word that is translated veil. Sometimes it's uh, even translated curtain. It's the Hebrew word uh, paraket, and it, it refers to this curtain in front of the most holy place. A different word is used in the Hebrew uh, to refer to the other, the other curtains, the curtain that's the outer entry into the uh, holy place and the curtains that hang outside the courtyard are referred to uh, by a different word. That word is the Hebrew word kela. Uh, And so this word is a distinct word emphasizing this one curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, and it's used 15 times. And its etymological uh, root has the idea of that which shuts off, that which separates. And so the very word that's used here emphasizes God being separate and distinct from people. Now, if you look at the descriptions in Exodus 26, 31 to 35, as well as Exodus 36, uh, 35 to 38, uh, the, this veil was to be woven in the same way with the same colors as the outer curtains. And just like the other curtains, it was to have uh, images of cherubs embroidered on it. And cherubs were one of the highest orders of angels that are always associated with the presence of God and with his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. So you have uh, this idea of God's holiness, his uniqueness, his distinctiveness, once again reinforced in the imagery of the, uh, of the, of the curtains. And there were three colors that were used in, these, uh, in the veil. The first color is a a blue color. A second color was a scarlet color. A uh, third color is kind of a purple color. And then there was a white color. Each of these uh, indicates and emphasizes a different aspect or different dimension about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we look at these colors, the first color that we're going to look at is the color of uh, although I don't have a slide on this, it's just the color white from the linen itself. This was the finest uh, kind of linen that has ever been made by human beings. It was a type of a very fine Egyptian linen that only the extremely wealthy uh, could afford. Only the highest in the royal family, the wealthiest Egyptians could afford this particular kind of linen, and it was a very white linen. And white, of course, in Scripture is uh, a picture of purity and righteousness. So the white uh, depicts the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Uh, and Paul says that, it says, uh, that uh, reinforces that in, in Romans chapter 8. And so this idea is that, that Jesus is absolutely perfect. He is impeccable, and there is no sin in him. 
The second color that is uh, emphasized here is the color. Uh, sometimes it's um, it's blue. Sometimes it's kind of a purplish color. It's translated different ways in different uh, different translations. It's the Hebrew word tekelet, and it's a kind of bluish purple, and it represents heaven as the dwelling place of God and the place from whence the Lord Jesus Christ came. He originated in heaven. He spent eternity as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, prior to the incarnation. And so it speaks of the, of heaven as the origin, as the home of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third color that's mentioned is the color argamon in the Hebrew, which is also translated purple, so it gets uh, it, it can be confusing in the English because the first word tekelet can also be translated sometimes as purple, and because it's a bluish purple, and argamon is more of a reddish purple, and this was a color that depicted royalty, a color that depicted royalty. It was a uh, very special. Uh, very special dye that was extremely expensive. It was made from the secretions of a sea snail, the Murex trunculus, and it took 250,000 mollusks to make one ounce of the dye. So that took a tremendous amount of man hours to do that, plus just in collecting all of them, not to mention collecting all of the secretions, mixing them, preparing them, and then uh, dyeing the, the fabric with that. The snails were, these snails were harvested only during the fall and winter. Uh, in the spring, when egg laying took place, there was a little dye that was available. They tended to remain concealed during the summer and the, and the uh, warmer months, and so they're only available in the in the winter months. Lydia in the New Testament is called a seller of purple. So this was what, this was her, uh, this was her commercial enterprise. And you would think because it is such an expensive, uh, dye that this was a very profitable business to be in. Uh, the Lord, uh, used, has prescribed this purple to be used in, uh, the curtains hanging outside of the courtyard. The, the curtains hanging outside the holy place as well as the veil within the holy place. It's also used in the uh, garments of the high priest. So it w- indicated that uh, this was something that was very special. And when we get to the high priest and what the high priest wore, this guy was just unbelievable. I mean, when you look at the clothing and the dyes and the fabrics that made up the uh, garments of the high priest. This is the sh- most in- impressively dressed individual in the ancient world because the average person just didn't have, couldn't afford to have clothes with these kinds of colors. They, they, they just had a very narrow range of colors. It sort of reminds me of back in 1994 when I first went into the former uh, Soviet Union and uh, went to um, Moscow and when we were uh, was met in Moscow, and the first thing we did, because they have to show Americans this, is we had to go to the first McDonald's that was ever 
built in Moscow. About the only time I'll ever go to McDonald's is in a foreign country like that. But we uh, we we took the uh, metro down there, and then we had to get off and walk about a mile to get there. And about every and every city block. I mean, this is like New York. Just imagine New York City like this, or some other large uh, eastern city where you think of a lot of life. You know, urban, not not Houston. Houston turns the lights off downtown at six o'clock at night. But uh, and these are these are very populated uh, urban uh, urban centers, and there would only be one street light on in each block. So it's very dim. No signs. No uh, uh, no no billboards. No flashing lights. No signs advertising restaurants or hotels or anything like that. So it's just very very dark. And the people all wore black or gray or dingy white. I remember, you know, you want to hear a funny story sometime when the Myers are back here. Ask Phyllis what it was like washing clothes when they were over there. You know, by, the, by the, about the fifth week of being there, everything was just sort of a dingy white. It, and as soon as they got back to the West, they washed everything. They went, wow, that's really a white shirt, isn't it? So everybody dressed like that, and so you, you, it was like going from Technicolor to a black and white movie. And I remember taking the overnight train to Mogilov and getting off at the train station, and another train had come in from Minsk, I guess, from the west, and was parked on the other side of the station and still had the, the big front spotlight on so that everything in the station was cast in relief, and I immediately thought of all those movies you see about World War II and the Nazis and people being herded off of trains and everything's in black and white. And then when I left after two weeks, you think there's no color left in the world, and you fly back and you get off the airplane in Amsterdam and, or, or London or someplace like that. It's like somebody turned on a rainbow. And you, you, I, I remember I had an overnight uh, delay in Amsterdam, and you're coming off of the... Um, coming off the airplane and on the way to the hotel, and it was right near downtown, and I went out, and I, I, I felt like a, just somebody right off the farm for the, seeing a city for the first time, walking down the streets, and all the streetlights are on, and there's people everywhere, and there's noise, and there's signs and flashing lights, and, and, and I had to close my mouth. Well, that gives you something of an idea of what it must have been like in the ancient world to see these colors. This was not in their normal day-to-day experience. They didn't have high-definition color TV or color screens or all the colors we have when we go to the store. So we read these colors and we think uh, we're not as impressed with this as they were. This was just uh, amazing to them to see all of these Beautiful, brilliant colors with these extremely rare and expensive dyes. So the uh, reddish purple speaks of royalty, and then the red dye, the uh, red actually used two different words. There's the word sani, which refers to a scarlet red, a bright red that had a touch of orange, an orangish red, and then there was the tola red, which was a Crimson, and this is usually translated uh, translated crimson, and, um, uh, and this is a um, the tola is a na- the noun means worm, and it referred to a kind of worm that was taken, collected, and then it was crushed 
in order to get the uh, coloring for the crimson dye. And um, it was of uh, such a... Um, such an intensity and permanence that once it got into the fabric, you couldn't get it out. And so this is used often to describe sin because sin is such a permanent stain on the human soul that it, it it's a perfect analogy. This is a stain that can't be just easily removed or easily washed out. And this is the word that's used in Isaiah 118. Come now, the Lord says, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, They will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so this, this is the depiction here of the, uh, the crimson speaking, speaks of sin, as does the scarlet, and the purple speaks of royalty, the bluish purple speaks of heaven. So all of these were woven together in just a brilliant, brilliant, uh, material that had no comparison in the ancient world. Remember the artisans, the craftsmen, the, the silversmiths, the goldsmiths, the jewelers, the, the seamstresses, all of these people were given a skill. Chokhmah is the Hebrew word, also means wisdom. They were given a special skill at what they were doing by God the Holy Spirit so that what they produced in terms of its artistry and its beauty was just, just Unique in the ancient world, unsurpassed. This, these, you know, models that uh, we make today give us some idea. But I'm convinced from uh, reading through the text that and understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in this that we just we can't even duplicate this. This this was to mark off the dwelling place of the God who created the heavens and the earth and to demonstrate his uniqueness and his distinctiveness. And the veils, the curtains especially, were designed to indicate that he is uh, completely unapproachable except on his terms. Now, when we come to the veil itself, uh, and it's just the basic architecture of the veil, it was hung from a frame that, that existed in the, door, the, the doorway to the inner Holy of Holies, it was hung from gold hooks that were supported by these four pillars of acacia wood that in turn were uh, covered in pure gold. So we have the depiction here from the model. And these four pillars of acacia wood covered with gold, again, are a picture of the hypostatic union, the union of undiminished deity with the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the acacia wood, again, reinforcing the idea of the impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ, a hard, dense wood that uh, uh, took a long time before any sort of rot or corruption entered into it. And then, there, were, of course, here they don't have cherubs embroidered into the veil, but that was the biblical description and they had an understanding through revelation of what the cherubs uh, looked like. There were different uh, uses of cherubs in the ancient world. Egyptians had their view of these kinds of animals like the sphinx. Uh, and these, these depictions of creatures with human bodies and lion's heads or eagle's heads or things like that uh, are somewhat reminiscent of the picture that we have of cherubs in Ezekiel uh, chapter 10, 
that they have the face of an ox and the face of a man, the face of an eagle, and uh, the face of a lion. And these uh, these depictions that we have that come down often in mythology are simply pale uh, remembrances and distorted remembrances of these actual uh, these actual creatures. So they had these creatures embroidered there as if they are standing guard. And if you remember after uh, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, as they are being expelled by God from the garden, God set up cherubim in the plural, which means there were was a, a host of these, an army of these uh, cherubs that surrounded the Garden of Eden and each had a flaming sword. And sword in the scripture always depicts the power over life, the power to and the ability to take life so that if anyone were to try to enter into the Garden of Eden after the fall, these cherubs were authorized to immediately execute that uh, individual. They were not to have access to the tree of life. And you see the same kind of thing in the uh, tabernacle and the temple, that no one was allowed to come into the presence of God. Uh, and if they did, if they tried, and we saw this last, last week with Nadab and Abihu, two of Aaron's sons, that if they had uh, tried to access God in an unauthorized way, then they immediately lost their life. And we think of the episode that occurred uh, with David in 1 Samuel chapter 6 as he is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into, into Jerusalem. And as he's uh, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, the, it's on a cart and they hit a bump in the road and the cart sort of uh, jostles a bit and one of the men sticks out his hand to stabilize God. And God doesn't need man to help stabilize him, and he instantly is killed. Uzzah dies instantly because he violates that that presence of God. And so we see this theme that runs all the way through Scripture, that God is totally distinct and totally separate, and we can only come to God on his terms, and that's on the basis of a blood sacrifice, that substitutionary atonement that's depicted through the various sacrifices at the brazen altar, all of which picture the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross, which is why Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. He is the veil, and you can't enter except by him, and you can't enter apart from his uh, His death. First uh, Timothy 2 uh, 2 verse 4 says, There is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only way. A mediator is the go-between, and he can be the go-between because he partakes of humanity on one side and deity on the other, and so there is only one mediator. That's the picture of the veil. Now, we don't know much more about the veil that hung in the tabernacle, we know that, uh, and when we come to the Solomon's temple, it appears that there is a doorway, a gate type doorway that stands between the holy place and the holy of holies, and we're not sure whether the veil in Solomon's temple was inside or outside of that doorway. 
and the rabbis have a lot of discussions about this in the uh, in the Talmud in Yoma chapter 51. According to Maimonides, who is also known by one of those wonderful little nicknames that the ra- that the Jews give the rabbis down through the Middle Ages, known as Rambam, uh, for Rabbi Moses ben Maimonides, it's sort of a shortening of the name. You have Rambam and Rashi and Ramban and a number of other different different uh, names for for these rabbis, but uh, Maimonides. Uh, said that there was no wall between the holy place and the holy of holies. There's a lot of uh, debate among the rabbis that there was a space of 18 inches uh, where the veil was hung. So it's hung in the midst of the wall. That was his conclusion. So nobody actually knows what that was like because we have no no data on it in the scriptures and no information from archaeology. Nothing is left of that of, of the first temple or Solomon's temple, in the uh, in Herod's temple, they had a phenomenal veil that hung in that temple. The veils were sixty feet long and thirty feet wide, and it was said that they were woven so thickly that they were the uh, breadth of a man's hand. That's how thick the fabric was. So that's approximately four to five inches and it was made of 72 squares that were sewn together and this made the veil so heavy that according to the Talmud it took 300 priests to hang the veils and this is a mammoth veil hanging there and you think about how thick it was and how tightly it was woven and this is the veil that was split from top to bottom at that time when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, when he was dying on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. In Matthew 27:51, we read, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom to indicate that access to God is now open, that Jesus Christ's death on the cross opens the way. He said, I am the door in the Gospel of John. He is the veil. He is that entryway into the presence of God. And the this is not something that could have happened by men. Men could not tear, tear it even from the bottom. And if men were to do it because of its height at 60 feet in height, it would take a large number of men to enter into the uh, holy place and to bring this about. So the only way it could happen is through a miraculous event caused uh, by God. Now, speaking of Herod's temple, what's interesting is that uh, on the inside of the Holy of Holies, we will get to this next week, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had the was a golden was a was a box made of acacia wood covered in gold, and it had a lid on the box that had two cherubs on it, which, of course, also depict the holiness of God. And these cherubs are looking down at the top of that uh, uh, of, the, of, the, of the lid, which was called the mercy seat. And it was the role of the priest, uh, at the high priest, every year on the, on the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, for the priest to come in and to put blood on the mercy seat. 
and it is a picture of the covering of sin, the payment for sin. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were three things. There was manna picturing God's provision of food, nourishment, sustenance physically, uh, which was rejected by Israel. They griped and complained about that. And there was Aaron's rod that budded, which was the event related to uh, a rebellion against Aaron's leadership. And then there was the Ten Commandments, which they broke, they violated right off the bat when they had Aaron build the golden calf. So those depicted key events in Israel's history. So you, the the priest was to come in and put the, the blood there on the mercy seat. But the prior to the Babylonian captivity, the invasion by Nebuchadnezzar, where they destroyed the first temple in 586, the Ark of the Covenant disappeared. Where did it go? Well, um, maybe it was found in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's probably sitting in a warehouse somewhere. But the we'll get into that and the theories on that next time when we get into the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark disappeared at that point. So when they came back after the uh, after the uh, exile and rebuilt the, sec- the temple, the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, in five, which was dedicated in 516, there was no Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. But the priest still would go into the Holy of Holies uh, every year at Yom Kippur and bring blood from the sacrifice there. And according to Josephus and according to the Talmud, what the high priest would do is he would actually enter into the Holy of Holies three times during that day. First, he would come in carrying a censer of hot coals in one hand, incense in another. The, the coals would come from the brazen altar, and the, the light from the coals, the burning coals, would give off enough light so that he could see the room itself and see what he was doing. The, then he would take the incense and he would put this upon the coals and as it began to burn, clouds would fill the Holy of Holies, much like the cloud associated with the presence of God had filled the Holy of Holies in the first temple. Uh, the ark, uh, when the ark was gone, so he would come back in a second time and he would bring the blood of a, uh, of a, uh, freshly sacrificed bull and he would enter the holy holy of holies and he would sprinkle blood up one uh, splattered up once in the air and then seven times down on the ground and then he would go out and take a male goat that was sacrificed come in a third time and he would offer the blood from the goat in the same way he did from the blood of the bull but there was no Ark of the Covenant there, so they carried on that ritual up until the destruction of the Second Temple in A.D. 70. Now, the veil itself, as I pointed out, depicts the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as our mediator. The veil hid the glory of God from the people just as the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ hid or veiled the glory of God during his incarnation. Uh, turn with me just to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is a great passage on the hypostatic union, beginning in verse 5. It's a passage that's familiar to most of you. I'm not going to go through a detailed uh, explanation of it. We're just going to, going to hit the high points. 
And what Paul is really is saying in these verses from 5 through 11 is to give a practical illustration that people can get a hold of in order to understand the concept of humility. Now, what always boggles my mind is that in, in so many churches today, even doctrinal churches, I, I get these stories from pastors, as I alluded to earlier, is that they want stories, but they want stories kind of like the stories I was telling earlier, not stories that come out of the Bible. And they want a little entertainment. They want to be made to feel good and feel all uh, upbeat and encouraged. And they don't want anything real technical or detailed. And it's always amazed me, I think one of the first Bible studies I ever put together when I was in seminary to take a sort of a a canned message to take around when I did uh, pulpit fill and uh, candidating was based on these first 11 verses. And Paul starts off talking about humility in verses 1 through 4 and what that is. And then having challenged the Philippian congregation to live in a manner of of genuine humility, he gives them an example of this attitude. And the example that he gives isn't one of these little trivial, entertaining examples that you get from most uh, homileticians today. This is one of the most profound examples you will ever find anywhere. If if, if Paul was going to tell you how to how to fix your car, he would start at the throne of God. And he would go all the way through. And that's one thing I appreciate. We're going to show this Jesus movie, uh, this Jesus film for the family night in uh, at the end of September. And one thing I appreciate about it, it's the Gospel of Luke, but it starts in the garden. It starts with God's creation of man. It doesn't start with Jesus showing up uh, in Bethlehem with his birth. It starts with the creation, because if you don't understand the creation and the fall, as we've covered so many times, if you don't understand the Old Testament in some sense, then Jesus showing up in Bethlehem doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have any any context. Well, so Paul starts off talking about, let this mind, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the morphe of God, the form of God, that indicates the essence of God, that word morphe, who being in the essence of God, which is one of the great verses to emphasize his, his true deity, his undiminished deity, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's the King James translation. It didn't consider equality with, with God something to be grasped after or hold on to, such as Eve was grasping for it through the fruit that uh, Satan said through the serpent, if you eat it, you'll be like God. So she's grabbing for deity. Jesus, who is deity, doesn't feel like deity is something to be grabbed after. Uh, he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form, the schema, the outer form, and um, physical body of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So Paul's going to teach about humility. He's going to just delve right into one of the most complicated explanations of the hypostatic union anywhere. So people get the idea that, well, we just don't want anything very complicated. They need to take Romans to Philemon and just take a razor blade and cut it out of their Bible. They might as well take care of Hebrews at the same time. Not that Paul wrote it, but it's difficult. So 
Jesus is found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. This is the the incarnation. This is one of the greatest passages on the incarnation in all of in all of the scripture. And so that's what is depicted here in the veil, is the veil hides the glory of God. And when Jesus was incarnate, the eternal second person of the Trinity is incarnate, he, his, his eternal attributes are veiled, as it were, so that when people looked at him, they just saw an everyday baby. He didn't look any different from any other baby. When he was a little boy running around Nazareth, he didn't look any different from any of the other boys running around Nazareth. He'd come in and he'd have dirt on his face and dirty feet and everything else and and uh, because he was a true human being. And as he grew up, he didn't appear to be any different from anybody else. There's there's uh, as as Isaiah says, there was no comeliness in him. There was nothing in his physical features that set him apart as as being distinct. He didn't look like Charlton Heston or or any of the Hollywood stars that uh, have been chosen along the way to sort of de- to depict Jesus because they had some uh, feature that stood out or made it look like they had a they were really looking into heaven whenever they looked anywhere. Some of the silly things that you see in some of the films, but Jesus veils that, and that's the idea there that he uh, was found in appearance as a man. Uh, he takes on humanity. So it's the, this is the kenosis passage here that uh, talks about the fact that not that he gave up deity, but that he willingly limits his uh, divine attributes, uh, re, uh, veils his glory. The only time it's seen is on a couple of occasions on the Mount of Transfiguration. His glory is revealed to Peter and uh, James and John. And then there's that that one moment in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane when the Roman soldiers reaching for him. There's this flash, and uh, all the soldiers fall down on the ground. And there's just this this instant where that that glory breaks forth, uh, and then uh, everything's just just normal. And they probably went home scratching their heads about that. But this is the idea of the veil. And the tearing of the veil depicts the opening up of the way to Jesus. Now, if you turn over just a, a couple of uh, a couple of books to First Timothy, First Timothy two, verse five. I think I said four earlier. It's verse five. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. So it is when he makes that purchase, he pays the price as our substitute, that the veil then can be ripped from top to bottom, opening up the way to God because the price is paid. But before people can get saved, they have to trust in Jesus Christ. They have to believe in him because they are still spiritually dead. They still lack eternal life and they still lack the kind of righteousness that God requires. Now, let's connect this to one more passage before we finish tonight. Keep going to towards the end of your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Remember, uh, we've been in this study since the 1st of May. We've had a few diversions along the way, missed a few weeks. 
But uh, we started off uh, with Hebrews 9, taking a diversion to understand all of the uh, intricacies of the tabernacle so that Hebrews 9 will make more sense to us as we go through it. But when we come to this, the end of this particular section, uh, which began in chapter 7 and extends through chapter 10, when we come to chapter 10, verse 20, uh, once again we come back to this imagery of the veil and the removal of the veil. Uh, Verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holy, holy, holiest, that is the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is the flesh. That is the veil depicts that, that, the, the, not, this isn't flesh used like the sin nature, but it depicts Jesus Christ uh, in his person as as the veil makes that connection, and he is the one that opens the way. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so we, we saw that same imagery of the cleansing, the water, um, the washing with the labor outside of the uh, tabernacle outside of the tent of meeting when we covered that. So we see all this imagery is connected there and tied together that the work of Christ is to uh, breach the opening to God so that he opens the way. He is the only way to God and there is no other way to God. And it's that exclusivity of the Christian claim that just drives the world nuts because they want to think that they have the right to dictate to God the terms on which they can come into his presence. But the imagery that we get in Scripture from the fact there's only one door to get onto the ark, there's only one ark to escape the flood, there's only one tabernacle, one presence of God, one way to enter Everybody has to enter on the basis of the prescriptions of the blood sacrifice, the cleansing at the altar. It has to be the right fire that is brought in from the brazen altar into the uh, Holy of Holies for the altar of incense. And if any of this is violated, then you can't come into the presence of God. And the only way we can come into the presence of God is on the terms that he has set forth because he understands what the real problem is, which is sin that separates that has separated man from God, and only God is the one who can uh, correctly saw and fully solve the problem of sin. And so, all of these different elements in the tabernacle depict these different facets of that solution to the sin problem. It's not a simple problem. That's why it drives me crazy when I talk to people who uh, don't believe in eternal security and think that you can believe one day and get salvation and do something the next day and lose your salvation. As you have such a, such a superficial view of what sin is and what the problem is, and you have a very superficial idea of what the solution is. The solution is so complex. There, there's so many different facets to the solution of our salvation that we ought to just stand with our mouth open in awe as we contemplate this. 
and that it's all yet and done in such a way that it's so simple that a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old can express faith in Jesus Christ and have salvation. And yet all the theologians in 2,000 years of history still wrestle with trying to uh, articulate and explain all the dimensions of this salvation. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word tonight, to, to look at these particular details again about the Lord Jesus Christ and how he is our one mediator, the one mediator between God and man, and how it is his person that qualified him to go to the cross, and there he paid the penalty as our substitute for our sins that we might have eternal life by simply believing in him. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study, that we would continue to think, contemplate, meditate on these things as we uh, go through our life, as we think about the scriptures, and that, that God the Holy Spirit would use this to strengthen our faith, strengthen our spiritual life, and strengthen our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.